last time I took a road trip? How many national parks could I hit in two weeks? What about hotels? Wait, hey, Erica, how much am I spending on travel? When your questions about life turn into questions about money, there's Erica, the virtual financial assistant to help you spend, save, and plan smarter. Only from Bank of America. What would you like the power to do? Erica is only available in the English language. You must download the latest version of the mobile banking app, only available on select mobile devices. Your chat may be recorded and monitored for quality assurance. Message and data rates and additional terms may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. This episode is brought to you by Accenture. A better you starts with better hydration. Accenture is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Essentia Overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. Discover game-changing technologies that are set to disrupt the year ahead. From bioengineering and the ethics of Gen AI to tech-driven sustainability, the HCL Tech Trends Report provides strategic insights that will help drive innovation and shape the future of your business. Hear the thoughts of global leaders and gain valuable insights that unlock the power of cutting-edge technology. Click on the link to download this report now. Hello and welcome to The Rest is Money with me, Robert Peston. And me, Steph McGovern. So we've got a really busy show and we're going to start by looking at events in the Red Sea, the attacks on container shipping and on oil tankers and what that means for our cost of living and growth prospects. And then we're going to look at Fujitsu and the post office. Yes, we certainly are because one of the Fujitsu bosses now has said that they were involved from the start in the horizon problems. They did have bugs and errors in the system and they did help the post office in the prosecution of sub postmasters. So we'll be looking more at Fujitsu's role in all of it. But let's start with the Red Sea because we talked about this, didn't we, on the podcast quite a few weeks ago now, saying that this looked like it was going to become a big problem for... got really concerned and you know about you know this is such an important trade route and you'll give us the you know the rundown on that in a minute or two but I did become very very concerned in the aftermath of the October the 7th atrocities Hamas's attack on Israel and then Israel's invasion of Gaza what we saw was the Yemeni Islamist movement the Houthis attacking shipping in the Red Sea. They claimed that they were doing this because they thought it would deplete in some way Israel and its economy. But of course, much of the shipping that's been hit is shipping that has nothing to do with Israel. It's just, you know, cargoes of really important goods heading for Europe or North America and uh, oil. And, you know, one of the reasons I talked about it a few weeks ago was because we were seeing really big businesses, BP, diverting tankers to other shipping routes. And we were seeing really huge container shipping businesses like Maersk saying they were no longer going to send their containers through the Red Sea. So why does it matter? Tell us about the importance of the Red Sea and the importance, because obviously it's the Red Sea that connects to the Suez Canal, you know, a really important Mm -hmm. waterway. Tell us why all of that matters. Yeah, because we're going to leave the kind of politics aside in this and just focus on the economics, you know, following the money in all of this. Because 
as you rightly say, it, the Red Sea is a, is a key part of the route from Europe and Asia. So it connects the Mediterranean and the Indian Ocean and also, you know, via the Suez Canal, as you said, providing the shortest route by sea between Europe and Asia. And therefore, it's a really valuable route for getting goods around the world. So, you know, and how much trade goes through? So, it? it's it's something like fifteen percent of global sea trade goes through it, and you know, it's a lot of stuff that's going through between Europe and Asia. And in volume terms, this is huge. I mean, you you'll have seen these as well. I've done many a report from uh, seaports where containers are coming in, and these containers are incredibly valuable, aren't they? They've got all kinds of things in, lots of different products from household goods to food to all sorts. So they're really, it's a really valuable trade route here. And, and as you say, now we've got some of the biggest shipping firms saying that they can't go that route anymore. So they're diverting on a much longer route around the Cape of Good Hope in order to get to Europe instead. And that takes about 10 days more to do that. And there are two consequences of that. There's a short-term cost. And the short-term cost is because the logistics of shipping are so well worked out, when you suddenly get a delay, an unexpected delay, you get queues at ports. So one of the things that we've been seeing is queues of container ships not being able to unload because you know they haven't turned up at the right time and they're just sitting there. Yeah. And so, you know, that there are, for example, some businesses that haven't been able to get the parts that they need. So we saw, for example, I think it was Tesla yeah. in Germany having to suspend manufacturing for a bit because it couldn't get the parts because of this kind of disruption. But then there's the second element of all of this, which is it is just pretty expensive to keep a ship at sea for longer because of the very high cost of fuel. And so if you are a business like Hapag Lloyd, for example, another huge sh container ship, sh shipping business, they're saying that I think on a monthly basis, simply delaying or making the journeys longer costs them, you know, I think it's up to something like $20 million a month. And then finally, the thing that we should point out is that this comes across a backdrop where another really important canal is in trouble. The Panama Canal on the other side of the world is basically big ships are finding it very difficult to go through the Panama Canal because as a result of climate change, the water level in the Panama Canal has reduced significantly. So actually capacity through the Panama Canal has massively reduced. And in general, therefore, this is just making journeys by sea much longer. Yeah, and much more expensive. That's the key with all of this. Because along with, as you say, the fuel costs, obviously they need to pay the crew for longer if they're going on this route around the Cape of Good Hope. There was a statistic put out on this saying that it costs per ship $3 million more to go that way around because of all the extra costs. And also they look at something called the freight rates, the container cost. And the December freight rate, so basically the average cost of shipping a 40-foot container in December was about $2,000 per container. And now it's nearly $6,000. So there's been that incredible tripling of the cost of sending a container, which means things are going to have to go up in price. So let's just break this down a bit. If you just look at the container, you know, the container price, economists would say that a doubling in 
the cost of shipping leads over about a period of a year to an increase in the inflation rate of a little bit less than 1%. So that's a significant increase in the inflation rate. And of course, it's a particularly worrying increase in the inflation rate at a time when we've got much higher interest rates because we've had this very, very serious inflation problem. And just when we thought inflation might be coming down, yeah. you know, th- this is another spur in the wrong direction. Now, the other interesting question about all of this is you'll remember after COVID, the impact of disruption of so-called supply chains, which include, you know, supply chains include shipping in this way, that led to one of the greatest initial spurs to inflation. And so one of the interesting questions is, is this going to be so disruptive that we're going to start seeing shortages? I I already mentioned the Tesla temporarily shutting down. If we were to see really serious shortages of goods, then of course that would be a really big setback to the battle against inflation because prices will go up quite significantly. Now, at the moment, we are not seeing that level of disruption to supply chains. And so it's possible that we may be lucky enough that this will be a one-off increase to to prices. But it has to be said, and I think that even so, friction of this sort in the system is bad for growth. And it's very difficult to see at the moment why. I mean, we've just seen, and I think it's important to point this out, we've just seen, obviously, America and Britain bombing Houthi missile bases. And we've then seen the Houthis say that means any shipping that they think is linked to America, any shipping that they think is linked to the UK, and pretty much all shipping in some senses is going to be linked to, you know, transport to Europe and and America. They're saying it's now fair game. They're saying they're going to attack any ships with links to us. And that means there's two aspects to this. One is, of course, it means the cost of insuring ships has gone through the roof. And in fact, you know, given the, the prices that, that are now being charged to shipping companies for going through the Red Sea, you know, it's almost as though, the, you know, it's prohibitively expensive. Yeah. So, I saw uh, a figure uh, but, on it, actually, which sorry? says it's gone up from 0.7% of a ship's value for insurance to 1% of a ship's value. And that obviously they're going to have to pay the staff more as well because of the well, I think, I think risk. since then, I think the, the, the costs have gone, up, they've gone, they've gone up even more. But basically, let's be absolutely clear. If you're a Western shipping company, you're not going to put your people in harm's way. And so truthfully, it just means that we're going to now see for probably weeks and months, massive diversion, an expensive diversion of uh, container shipping. And this affects every element of life, doesn't it? Because as well as obviously car parts, you've mentioned Tesla, we've also heard from Qatar saying that they've paused shipments of gas and they're the third biggest gas supplier to us. So, you know, that mean might mean we have to use our supplies that we've got in reserves, but it impacts every element of life, doesn't it? We're talking fuel prices, we're talking food prices, yeah. we're talking, you know, how much we pay for consumer goods. So, it and is And I wanted to point, point out here that it is odd actually that the oil price hasn't risen, the oil and gas price hasn't hasn't yet risen more, but we can't, you know, take for granted that at some point there will be a significant increase in demand relative to supply and that we won't see a significant rise again in oil and gas prices. And again, we should remind people that it was that increase post-Putin's invasion of Ukraine 
that was a big spur. It was not the yeah. only cause of this terrible inflation recycle we've lived through, but it was a big spur to inflation. So there are lots of reasons to be um, just wary yeah. that the battle against inflation is going to get worse. And equally, when these costs go up, it is a dampener on growth, yeah. right? When the cost of doing business, when the cost of our everyday goods goes up, and there is no growth in the UK at the moment, for example. So, yeah. you know, this is, this is a concern. All of this, though, reinforces my point that I've made before on the show about the role of the MPC in deciding rates when what really is impacting inflation is geopolitics that they have absolutely nothing to do with. Because, you know, we actually had a question on this as we well. We always disagree about this, but anyway, go on. Yeah, yeah but I just think how can, you know, now when inflation potentially goes up because of what's happening in the Red Sea, that's got nothing to do with our spending in the UK, our domestic spend, has it? And what we might not be spending because of our interest rates being higher. Okay, so I'm going to put the Bank of England's case yeah, go on. for interest rates being higher for longer. You are completely right that if you have a price shock and it's a one-off and you, know, you then get a one-off just correction throughout the economy – in terms of you know paying people a bit more as a one-off to adjust to higher input prices, then that is not an inflationary problem. That's a one-off but adjustment. But if this goes but, on, the Russian but the point. The point that we've got at the moment is we've got wages going up faster than inflation, and we've got, for example, we've just literally had new inflation figures, and they showed that the decline in inflation for the first time in almost a year has stopped. It's gone into reverse. Inflation has gone up a little bit in the UK. Now, but no one changes of, one on of, interest one, rates. One, one of, one of the, the causes of that, perhaps the more important cause of that, is a one-off factor, which is increased actually in tobacco prices. But what was also striking is that service sector inflation did rise. And that means that companies with control over their pricing are putting up prices more. And that is the concern to the Bank of Which England. Which the MPC have that, no that, control that's got over. Nothing to do, that, that, that is not but a one-off effect. That we, is not, that's that my is, point about monetary policy, though. It's only ever about consumer spending. It's never about what the, the bigger picture of geopolitics or what companies no. are charging. No, but it is about what companies are charging. That's the whole point. Service, no, but service, service, when we talk about so, the service sector, we are talking about what companies feel they can get away with in terms of putting up prices because of their import price. So look, the terrible thing about monetary policy is it is designed to make us poorer, right? And you know, the Bank of England has, some would say, the worst job in the world because if it's doing its job, it is trying to make us poorer. And it's sort of amazing that people don't hate the Bank of England. Well, we've got a question which is linked to this. So answer this for me, because this is my same beef with it. So this is from Fee Posner. Thank you for sending in uh, the question, by the way, Fee. If you do want to send in questions, it's restismoney at gmail.com. Um, why do you think the Bank of England MPC estimates on inflation have been so wide off the mark in the last years? And does it matter for their reputation long term? Yes, of course it matters for their reputation long term. And they did get, I mean, the, the fact of the matter is, gets back to the original point that I was making about one-off price readjustments and underlying trends. The Bank of England completely missed what was happening as we came out of COVID, mm. right? What they thought was happening 
was there was a sort of one-off increase in prices that would just work its way through without there being an underlying inflation problem. And what they hadn't recognised is coming out of COVID, there was a massive increase in demand relative to supply that was bound to fuel more intractable inflation. And then when Putin invaded Ukraine and we saw that energy price shock, again, they saw that as more of a one-off problem rather than fueling underlying inflationary pressures because they misunderstood the initial inflation. They misunderstood that it would have been more sensible to put up interest rates earlier to dampen demand because what they originally thought they were seeing was a supply shock, right? But what was actually going on simultaneously with the so-called supply shock was demand was running ahead of capacity. And when you see demand running ahead of capacity, that's why it makes sense to put up interest rates, just to dampen that demand a bit. And the thing that they did get wrong was, this is why it matters, if they'd put up interest rates earlier and suppressed that demand more earlier, then they would have had to put up interest rates less than they did eventually do. And so the criticism you can make of the Bank of England is they've had to make us poorer than we needed to be because they didn't act early enough. Now, I just want to put in Go one on. bit of defence of the Bank of England. Then I'm going which to have is, a moan. Yeah, you're going to definitely have a moan, is that they were not the only central bank to get it wrong. Every central bank the US Federal Reserve or every important Western central bank got this wrong. Because it doesn't The work. European Central Bank didn't intervene early enough and the US Federal Reserve didn't intervene early this. enough. So their only defence is they all got it wrong. I just don't buy this one-off malarkey though. It's a bit like when you get companies... What do you mean you don't understand? You well, don't no, buy. I'm not saying I don't understand it. I totally understand it. But I just do don't... Do because do there's always one-offs that aren't in our control, whether it's, you know, Russia and Ukraine, whether it's the Red Sea, whether... Yeah, but what's your point? But of course my that's point Right. is that we can't then control inflation with interest rates if these one-off things keep happening all over the shop. I just don't buy that. It's the consumers that have to be the ones who have to take the hit for when there's so much geopolitics connected to it all. Okay. Just to be clear, though, the Bank of England sort of did what you wanted them to do initially. Initially, they didn't put interest rates up early enough because they took your view that they thought it was going to be but a one-off. But I don't buy the interest. And then, but I don't and then buy they recognised that they got it wrong. No, but I just and don't. And they then at that point had to dampen demand. And so I, I, I just I, think it wasn't anything to do with rates going up, that inflation's come down. And I know there'll be loads of people who disagree with me, but I just, for years and years, I've thought this about monetary policy. I just think it's outdated. Well, it is unquestionably the case that economies change and... You know, the Bank of England is, with the help of Ben Bernanke, a former chairman yeah. of the US Federal Reserve, it is reviewing how it does monetary policy and the extent to which it has to change. And there are very interesting, you know, I'm going to talk about bust again. In in my book, I talk about I talk I talk about why we should be more imaginative when we get into these inflationary cycles about using price controls as an additional tool along with interest rates. And it is certainly the case that, for example, if you look at France, where they had some voluntary agreements with supermarkets to hold prices down, I would say that is a model that we should be looking at in the UK. Yeah, interesting. We should talk about that again another time. Um, but uh, shall we move on? And we're going to answer more of your questions later on in this episode as but well. I think it's time for a break. Yes. 
eBay Motors is here for the ride. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. Discover game-changing technologies that are set to disrupt the year ahead. From bioengineering and the ethics of Gen AI to tech-driven sustainability, the HCL Tech Trends Report provides strategic insights that will help drive innovation and shape the future of your business. Hear the thoughts of global leaders and gain valuable insights that unlock the power of cutting-edge technology. Click on the link to download this report now. Welcome back to The Rest is Money with me, Steph McGovern. And with me, Robert Peston. Everyone's still talking about the post office scandal, understandably, and the horrendous Horizon system drama, which was, of course, created and run by Fujitsu. And they've been in the spotlight in particular this week because their uh, European boss has been in front of the House of Commons Business and Trade Select Committee and was talking about the moral obligation. Yeah, I was watching it and it was a sort of... Um I found it a very depressing session. On the one hand, at last, they said a proper sorry. And he said, yes, they did have a moral obligation to make a contribution to the vast sums of money that will have to be paid out to um, post office sub postmasters. And, you know, not because these people don't deserve it. It's because they absolutely deserve it, because this is an appalling miscarriage of justice. It looks as though the bill, you know, when it comes to both the amounts paid out that will have to be paid out to the hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people who um, should never have been convicted of fraud and theft, plus the legal cost is going to come to well over a billion. And given that Fujitsu that supplied this, put it mildly, suboptimal, flawed, disastrous software system to the post office Horizon, given that they've pocketed, will have pocketed uh, by the time Horizon is scrapped, um, and we think it's going to be scrapped in a year or two, they will have, they I will can't have pocketed believe it's still been used. 2.5 billion quid in revenues. Obviously, many people would say they have uh, an absolutely clear obligation uh, to help fund this compensation, this restitution to sub-postmasters. They won't say at this stage, Paul Patterson would not say how much he or his company would contribute. They are saying that they can't put a, a number on it until we get the result of the Wynne Williams statutory inquiry into what went wrong. I think this is sort of bizarre, actually. You know, this must be the biggest thing on his plate in terms of Europe must be, surely, the reputational damage being done to Fujitsu is off the charts. So why he wasn't able to come and see MPs with at least an initial offer seems weird to me. But it was worse than that. Neither he or the post office chief executive, a chap called Nick Reed, they weren't able to answer really basic questions, right? So among the really basic questions 
is when did management at the post office know, we talked about this last week, uh, that IT at the post office and at Fujitsu could access sub-postmasters' workstations and change the data in them? When did they know that it was within the power of the post office to change that data? And of course, don't forget the reason this matters is it's because that data alleging Losses and you know alleging fraud by so postmasters that was the heart of these court cases. And one of the reasons these court cases were successful is because the courts believed that there was no way for the centre to manipulate the data. Well, we now know that the data could be manipulated from the centre. They couldn't tell MPs when senior management were aware for the first time. So they're either lying or they're stupid. Well. Neither Paul Patterson or Reid were around, you know, when these prosecutions were taking place or they weren't in their big jobs when these prosecutions were, were, t- were taking place. But you'd have thought they would have been able to find out yeah. the answers to these questions before seeing MPs. And I came away thinking, you know, they claim that they care. They claim that they're sorry. But if they were really sorry, they yeah. would have found answers to these questions surely- given the attention that was going to be on them. Surely you um, could, they could just ask, though, the Fujitsu expert yeah. witnesses that were used in the prosecution cases. Surely they could just go back to all of them and say, what did you really know and when? It just seems mind-blowing that they but can't all, but, sort but, this but, all but, out. Why, but why, wasn't they, why isn't there just, you know, frankly, records within their own organisation? They couldn't even, and this is incredible, they couldn't even answer when either the post office or, you know, Fujitsu themselves were aware of the magnitude of the flaws in Horizon. They couldn't even answer something as basic as that. So, you know, I have to say, I found myself sort of, you know, inwardly shouting with rage um, when we were watching this. And, And the reason this matters, okay, is because we live in a world of declining trust in really important institutions. And you'd think, right, in this, I mean, we, you know, we, we've just done an episode on Davos and the World Economic Forum, which is all about institutions rebuilding trust, trust with yeah. people, right? If you want to rebuild trust, you've got to be open and honest about the mistakes you've made and give people the information of they course. need. And they signally fail to do that, you know, w- when this is the biggest story in town. I was in um, my local post office the other day, actually, and um, they were saying in there that now people, they're finding that a lot of customers and not wanting to go into the post office because they don't want to give money and put any money to the post office. Yeah, they were saying they're really worried about it, saying it's going to hit them even more because of that. But coming back to Fujitsu yeah, tell, then, us a bit, tell, tell us a bit about the so, history of this organisation. It's yeah, a name I think people have probably yes. heard of. And it's a very powerful name, which is connected to a lot of things that are used to help run the country. But yeah, quick potted history, Japanese IT company. It started in the 1930s, actually started as a telecommunications company and then grew over time into computing. They bought up various different businesses as well, including International Computers Limited, who made the Horizon system in the late 90s. But this is a company that is incredibly connected to our government. So they have won over 150 government contracts since the post office stopped prosecuting its staff. So after this, they still got 150 government contracts and it is one of the government's what they call strategic suppliers. So that typically means it receives over £100 million in contracts every year. 
So this is a company that has got its mitts all over everything. And, and one of the things we talked about last week is what does a company have to do to fail or in this case, to be a partner with the post office, because one of the things that Paul Patterson of Fujitsu admitted yesterday is, yes, they supplied the dodgy data to the post office that were used in prosecutions. And just think about this for a second, okay? Fujitsu knew at a certain stage that its system was was flawed. It knew that the computers could be accessed centrally, right? It was supplying data that was being used to wrongly convict these hundreds of sub-postmasters. And at no point did it feel, oh my goodness, we might be party to a miscarriage of justice. We might be party to something that is really, really wrong. They never blew the whistle. Um, at what point does somebody in government say, we should not be dealing with yeah. these people. Is that because there's not enough people in the civil service and in government who understand technology? We've said it before on the show, haven't we, about, you know, maybe there's just a lack of there is a total knowledge lack of diversity. I mean, funnily enough, you know, there's a bloke who used to run uh, who's, who's called the Chief Scientific Advisor, a, a bloke called Sir Patrick Valance. Um, oh, who, we all remember old Patrick, don't we, from all the briefings. He's, he's a pretty impressive bloke. Yeah, he is, And yeah. he did actually report for government saying, you have way too few uh, civil servants with any knowledge of science, of IT. He tried to lead a campaign to get more expertise into Whitehall. I think it has improved a bit, but it's not yeah. good enough. Um, you know, One of the reasons we were so useless in the early stage of the pandemic is there just weren't enough people with the requisite expertise to understand the science. But, it, you know, it, interestingly, I mean, there's an old friend of mine, a bloke called Jeff Morgan, who used to work for Tony Blair. He was in Tony Blair's office, a very senior advisory position in 99. He was making those points in 1999, in relation to Horizon, he made a report to the Prime Minister before the decision was made to completely roll out Horizon to all post offices. He did a report for the Prime Minister in which he said, this is a really bad system. We should never have spent money on it over the last few years yeah. developing it. And he also said, and one of the reasons why we spent all this money on it was because there are just too few civil servants and ministers who have the faintest idea about IT. They just don't get it and the wool gets pulled over their eyes. And so he was saying back then, we have got to get more expertise in and nothing of any significance happened um, that to is improve scary. the quality of expertise in that Do you know, I, I want to come back to this on another podcast, actually, because we've had a, a couple of questions in about IT and whether we're, you know, there's a big problem in education around that. So we should come back there to that is topic. A, there is yeah, a problem, particularly in this, in this artificial yeah. intelligence age, you know, Absolutely, you know, immersing, you know, in the Davos podcast we just did yesterday, I talked about how other countries, you know, UAE is in, is making yeah. sure that all its civil servants learn about artificial intelligence, which is not happening in the UK. Yeah, let's definitely come back to that because I have been talking to various head teachers and others in education about this as well. There's another issue in all of this as well in terms of, of compensation and legality, yeah. um, which I know you, you were sending me messages in terms of what Dan Needle's been saying on this. You know, give yeah, that's a bit right. More. So he's this great tax expert. He used to work at Clifford Charles, but he set up this campaigning organisation for, you know, essentially what he would call tax justice and, you know, basically highlighting, you know, where 
he thinks you know people are paid fast and loose with the tax system and as you'll probably remember he was the guy who shone a light on Nadim Zahawi you know who was being investigated by HMRC and was you know probably more responsible than anybody else for you know Zahawi having to resign from the government but anyway so needle with some senior lawyers has been looking at the legal case there might be against Fujitsu to pay compensation it was quite interesting we said earlier that what Paul Patterson talked about was that he felt Fujitsu had a moral obligation to uh, hand over. This is their European boss, isn't it? Fujitsu, yeah, just to that's remind right. everyone. He said there was a moral obligation to contribute to the money that's being paid to sub postmasters. Nobody used the word legal obligation. And Needle thinks that there is a chance that because. The post office hasn't started legal proceedings against Fujitsu, that they may have run out of time. There is a statute of limitations when it comes to taking action for these sorts of uh, you know potential breaches of contract, and it's and it's six years essentially. But you you have six years from the time that you got the information that. A supplier, for example, may have breached contracts or just done something wrong, which would entitle you to conversation to start taking legal action. And he says there was a legal letter, he thinks, that was sent from the post office in 2020, but the post office probably was in possession of the information it needed back in 2013. Oh, so it should time. have started in 2019. We sort of hope, from what Fujitsu said, that it won't come down to a court case against. Fujitsu, that they will simply do the right thing yeah. when this statutory inquiry reports. But if it ever came to a court case, it is possible, it's another example of the post office's incompetence, that they simply didn't start legal proceedings in time. Oh, God. It's a right mess, isn't it? Um, right. Should we have a look at some of the other questions that we've been sent in by listeners? Just a reminder, you can send them on our social media. Just search The Rest Is Money. Uh, you can also email them to us as well. And that email address is restismoney at gmail.com. So what are we going to kick off with? So we've got a question here from Alexander, and this is, can you talk about the plan for a sphere in London? So for those of you who don't know what this sphere is we're talking about, this is a 300 foot, what they're calling orb entertainment venue. There's one in, in Vegas now, and it's got a capacity of around 20,000 people. Originally planned for... What's an orb entertainment <laughs> venue? Right, so I've seen the one in Vegas, right? And basically, it's just this massive, big... Oh, but I don't know how to describe it. It's a sphere, is it? It's like a sphere? Yeah, it's as the name says. It's a sphere. And when you fly into it, you can go inside it, can you? Yeah, it's a venue. So you can, you know, we've had amazing concerts in the Vegas one already. It's also something you can see from miles away. So when you fly into Vegas, the orb can, because of all the screens on it, can be turned into anything. So when I landed there recently, it was a big smiley face that winked at you on the. (laughs) For for everyone listening, it's it's just rolled his eyes. Something out of Blade Runner. (laughs) Yeah. You know, so you can see it from miles away. So it's a bit of a, it's an attraction point as much as it is a place, a venue to to have all this entertainment. But obviously, given it's got all these screens on it and all this, you know, the LEDs and everything, it emits a lot of light. So that's the kind of big beef. So it's it's like pollution and presumably it uses the most enormous amount of energy as well, I would imagine. And inside, what's it like inside? Is that also tons of projectors and all that kind of stuff? Yeah, it's really classy. It's like, 
just an amazing, immersive um, venue, entertainment venue. Right. And the plan was to open one of these in Stratford near the Olympic Park. And for those of you who don't know London, Stratford is East London. There's been a lot of developments there. The Olympics obviously was there. You've got like the Westfield Shopping Centre where we're looking at opening another slime unit there as well. I just point out, I've got to pay you That's 20, 20 quid, quid now. For me. <laughs> yeah, uh, but the problem is it's not far from the O2 which is obviously, you know, the other side of the Thames. So unsurprisingly, the main opponents of this entertainment venue are the owner of the O2 Arena, uh, AG. And does he have a respectable argument? Well, I mean, their argument is it's going to take business away, but they obviously know that everyone would think that they would have that complaint. So apparently they took a more sneaky route to try and stop it from happening. So they channeled their PR money into funding things like noise and light pollution research, so you know, these impact studies. And they basically helped the residents group who would be near this venue who didn't want it. And Sadiq Khan has said it's not he's happening. blocked it. Yeah. But Michael Gove wants it, is that right? Yes. So where are we though? Is it it's is not it happening. is it gone? It's definitely gone. Yeah. The owners have walked away. Is yeah, that right? They've withdrawn their planning permission right. for it and they've basically said they didn't expect all of this politics to happen. But I got interested in this when the Tees Valley Mayor, Ben Houchen, he then approached the company, the owner of the Sphere Entertainment. He so Who he wrote the owner? To, so it's James Dolan. It's this billionaire boss of Madison Square Garden. So they own loads of you know amazing venues. And um, Ben Houchen wrote to this guy, James Dolan, this billionaire, saying we should have it in Middlesbrough. And what do you think? Um, I think that's a great idea because it hang would on a bring... second. So, so light pollution is bad in Stratford, but it's fine in Middlesbrough. But but we're not as built up, are we, as London? So if you put it out somewhere in Teesside, where it would bring in loads of jobs, it would bring in loads of acts there. And then, you know, we've talked about Taylor Swift and all the money she brings. Mm. If she came and did the sphere in Borough... Oh, that'd be mega for the area. And why should they both be in London? Why do you don't need a sphere and an O2 in London, do you? I wonder you? if this is Let's another plastic a... straw moment for you. No, because, <laughs> I mean, this would be a destination place. When Beyonce played at the Stadium of Light and Pink, it brought so much money to the area, money that is vitally needed. So I am all for. I and is there not any chance with... of it happening? I doubt it. You know, I don't necessarily agree with everything Ben Houchen says, but on this, I think that is a really good idea. So all for Sphere in Borough. So there you are. You heard it first. The campaign for the Sphere in Middlesbrough has started here. All <laughs> the rest is money. I wonder if I should start being fined for how many times I mentioned Middlesbrough on the podcast, because I think I've got it into every episode. It's a bit like when I do have I Got News For You. I see it as a failure if I don't get Middlesbrough mentioned on it in every episode I do. Anyway, shall we have a look at another question? Um, obviously, we got we did the episode, the special on productivity, and I know loads of people messaged in after that, which was really nice to see, and lots of questions as well. So Luke has sent one, Luke Uri Prince, who says, your recent discussions on UK productivity got me thinking, would the UK be more productive if all employees were granted shares as well as their basic salary as part of their compensation? Would employee representation on boards boost productivity. Yeah. There's some good examples, aren't there? You know, a well-known one is obviously John Lewis, but it's quite popular in professional services and construction and, and manufacturing as well. So for example, Mott McDonald, big um, engineering firm, employs about 18,000 people. And that is an employee 
owned business. And, you know, they talk about having higher productivity and greater levels of innovation and more resilience to economic turbulence, which I know they're bound to say, obviously, from a PR perspective. But it is interesting, this idea of if you work there and you are partly benefiting from the money it makes, that has got to be an incentive to make you work harder. Look, there's a ton of, of evidence that employee ownership does help with people identifying with their business. If they know they're going to get richer, if the whole business does better, then they'll probably commit a bit more to it. It also sort of does away with some of the more sort of pernicious hierarchies. If you know everybody's got a stake and you genuinely are all in it together, you probably feel a bit less resentful of of the boss. Now, there are all sorts of complicated issues. Luke also talks about getting employees more involved in decision-making. Look, if you look at uh, an economy like Germany, yeah, there is more employee participation, particularly at board level. It's not that easy to get employee participation. The logistics of it are difficult. But yes, I think getting uh, you know employees more involved in big strategic decisions is really quite interesting. I was really quite struck. So there's this um, KKR, you think of them as sort of the epitome of what some would say really aggressive capitalism. They're a private equity firm yeah. and you know they do buyouts of businesses. I was really struck. I was listening to one of their founders, Henry Kravitz, the other day. They bought a garage door manufacturing firm in America and they did an employee ownership program for the garage door manufacturers, right? Um, these are what they call blue collar workers in America. After a number of years, when I think the business was sold, there were significant numbers of these employees who made hundreds of thousands of dollars. Now, what he said that I thought was quite interesting is they thought there was a risk that when these guys cashed out, they would just leave the business and therefore the new owner would lose some really valuable people. In fact, what happened, according to Kravis, is that these employees felt not exactly grateful, but so connected to the business because they'd made all this money that actually they all stayed. Nobody oh, that's left. Brilliant. So it does show you that, you know, whether you're left or right, if what you care about is wealth creation, employee ownership is obviously, a, you know, well, can be a really good thing. Yeah, I guess the downsides, though, which uh, you sometimes hear is that it can make decision making slower and also unpopular decisions that might upset people who work there might be but held I think that's usually and- a disguise for basically bosses don't like being told what to do. Yeah. You know, I think particularly in this new, really complex economy, you have to be open to ideas from everywhere. Now, you know, you might not agree with a colleague or indeed an employee works council, but listen to them because chances are they're close to the work. They're going to be close to the customer. They're going to have information you're going to want to listen to. Doesn't it make it hard to value the company though and also hard to raise money in terms of, you know, like if you want to sell shares. You can't raise money from those shares, can you, if they're employee shares. If it's employee-owned, isn't it hard to work out how much it's worth, how you value it, because the shares are owned by the employees. They're not by people who've bought them. Look, there are lots of different models. So you can have, you know, the traditional hybrid model where you've got some of the shares owned by employees, some of the shares owned by investors. And then it's very, very easy just to get a market price, you know, if if you want to transfer some of the shares. And certainly if you've got a listing, which you might have in these circumstances, there's a stock market price. There are obviously other examples like the John Lewis example, where, you know, there is no market price and there are no significant outside investors. But in that case, what the shares are useful for 
is so that individuals get a share of the overall surplus made by the business. Now, we should be clear about this. John Lewis has gone through some very difficult times. Uh, it, historically, yeah. it was a great example of you know of a partnership and an employee-owned business. More recently, because retail has gone through such difficult periods, frankly, those shares have not been quite yeah. as valuable to the employees. But there is always a formula available to work out, A, how to value a share, whether it's owned by an employee or owned by anybody else. So, you know, nobody should think that there are sort of technical difficulties that stand yeah. in the way of giving employees a stake. So in answer to Luke's question, I think we both think that employee-owned businesses are more productive. It could help. Well, can be more productive. Yeah. I mean, you can also still have really terrible people running a company, or you can still or have. Or you could still have. Or you could still have. You know, really stupid decisions made, like not investing enough in the right kind of stuff. But as a backdrop to a business where you have a degree of sort of solidarity and a range of voices, all of which I think is important uh, for you know a successful business. I think employee ownership is definitely a good thing. Excellent. Right. Well, um, thank you for those questions. And just a reminder, do send us more. If you've got some more, just any thoughts you have on what you think we should be talking about on the podcast, just send them to restersmoney at gmail.com. But that's it from us, isn't it, Robert? See you next week. Bye-bye. 